Over 300 people were executed for their beliefs in England and Wales between 1555 and 1558. Most were burned at the stake. Traditionally, English historians always blamed Catholic Queen Mary. They call her Bloody Mary. But we've seen that after Mary's marriage to King Philip of Spain in July 1554, England was ruled by a joint monarchy and that King Philip had much more authority than Mary did. The persecution in England and Wales was also just one part of a wave of persecution by both Protestants and Catholics that spread right across Europe. In fact, in England, it had begun years before Mary had come to the throne. Now we've seen that the Spanish churchmen around King Philip probably encouraged him to get on and stamp out heresy in England. But we've also seen that there's no getting away from the fact that the persecution in England must originally have been set up by Philip's select council. And they were extremely able and experienced English courtiers. And you see, the thing is that most of them had previously been councillors to Henry VIII and Edward VI, which means they'd spent their lives working for Protestant regimes. If it seems unlikely to you that Protestant councillors set up a wave of Catholic persecution, it seemed unlikely to us also. But there are good reasons to suppose it's true, and the first is Mary's pregnancy. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow. And I'm John Roseback, and we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. In January 1555, Mary was pregnant. Now, we all know that Mary never went into labour and never had a child. The fact that she twice believed herself to be pregnant has been used by traditional historians to prove that she was, well, stupid and bigoted. Stupid to convince herself she was pregnant in the first place just because she so badly wanted to be, and bigoted because she presumably believed that God wanted her to have a baby. After all, as everyone knew perfectly well, if Mary died without an heir, her Protestant half-sister, the Princess Elizabeth, would come to the throne and take England back out of the Catholic Church again. When she married in July 1554, Mary was 38. She might have expected to live for many more years, but it was clear to everyone that she probably only had one shot at getting pregnant. And to everyone's astonishment and delight, by November that year, it was obvious that she was indeed expecting. Now, because no child was born, historians curiously overlook Mary's pregnancy, as if it occurred only in her head. But at least until April of 1555, everybody believed that Mary was pregnant. All the evidence agreed. Her periods stopped, her stomach and breast swelled, and she may have even begun to lactate. She could in fact feel the baby moving inside her. In mid-April 1555, all the usual arrangements, therefore, were made for Queen Mary to begin her long six-week confinement. In May, proclamations and diplomatic letters were prepared for the announcement of the birth. Now, the notion that the entire English court danced through a pantomime of pretending that Mary was pregnant just because she was stupid and bigoted and insisted that they joined her in her fantasy stretches credulity just too much. 
so far as everybody at the English court was concerned, and indeed as far as everybody at courts all round Europe were concerned, until late April 1555, when doubts first began to circulate, Queen Mary was pregnant. Why then did Mary's pregnancy eventually subside without her going into labour or having a miscarriage? Well, the explanation isn't difficult to find and has been discussed since at least the 1970s by medical historians. Mary seems to have suffered from prolactinoma. That's a tumour of the pituitary gland at the base of the brain, which probably eventually killed her. Or she suffered from a classic episode of pseudocyesis, which made her seem pregnant. It seems possible that in 1555 she might even have suffered from both of these very distressing conditions at the same time. Pseudocyesis is a medical condition documented since ancient times. It's not something she could have made up in which the body replicates pregnancy down to the most telling details, including the sensation of the baby's movements. Yeah, look it up. Pseudocyesis. The only missing sign is the baby's heartbeat which could explain why, by late April, physicians and midwives were becoming anxious. Until the swelling in Mary's abdomen began to go down in late May, the experts may quietly have begun to assume among themselves that the Queen had suffered a miscarriage and that the baby, when it came, would be stillborn. This crisis of the royal baby who was expected any day but somehow never arrived explains why we find that the Privy Council met daily in late May and early June 1555 and why, very unusually, many of Mary's own particular confidant attended. The great tragedy was that since Philip and Mary would probably have stopped sleeping together once the pregnancy was apparently established, she'd missed by far her best chance of producing an heir. Her 39th birthday had passed in February 1555. And sadly, she had a second phantom pregnancy uh, almost at the end of her life. And it looks likely that this time it was connected to the cancer that killed her. By then, Mary was almost blind and dogged by endless headaches, classic signs of prolactinoma. It would also account for the roundness of her face in some paintings. And it would also have made it impossible for her ever to have conceived. It's a very tragic story, but why did Mary's pregnancy in late 1554 and early 1555 make any difference to her government's religious policy? Well, the point is that it left Philip's Consejo, his select council, with very little choice about what to do about those who might oppose the revival of the Catholic Church in England and Wales. If there was to be a Catholic heir to the joint Anglo-Spanish dynasty, then the threat of Protestant rebellion would become much more serious, and it had to be headed off. There had already been one serious rebellion in 1554. Beginning in Kent, it had reached the gates of the city of London itself. Mary had stayed in London and given a rousing speech to those defending it. And this is another sort of thing we're never told about Mary. It contrasts sharply with Elizabeth's famous heart and stomach of a man speech, which we all know about, which she supposedly gave in defiance of the Spanish Armada. Supposedly gave? We don't even know that Elizabeth ever actually did give it. And even if she did, by the time she reached Tilbury in 1588, the Spanish Armada was long past the Thames estuary. It had missed the Spanish army, which was sitting in the Netherlands. It was now completely harmlessly sailing off into the North Sea. Anybody who knew anything about sailing ships and prevailing wind knew that the threat of danger was already well over by the time Elizabeth supposedly made this speech. That 1554 rebellion had ostensibly been in opposition to Mary's forthcoming marriage to the Spanish Philip. But there had certainly been an element of Protestant resistance, at any rate among its small-time gentry leaders. Rumours of plots 
including people who pretended that they were Edward VI, claiming claiming he was still alive after he died very young, were regularly reaching the council and the possibility of French backing for them couldn't be ruled out. With a Catholic baby now due, all those threats would become much more serious. By the beginning of 1555, everything else was in place for the full-scale restoration of the Catholic Church in England and Wales. Mary's cousin, Cardinal Poole, had arrived to lead the Catholic Church and had announced formal reconciliation with Rome. King Philip's select council, responsible for good government, really now had no alternative but to grasp the nettle of suppressing any potential causes of unrest, including any remaining shreds of die-hard Protestantism. By January 1555, as we've seen, they got the old English heresy laws repassed through Parliament, which protected the property of the accused. All the council could now do would be to make sure that everything was done to enforce Catholic unity and conformity as quickly and as calmly and as openly and as fairly as possible. And then it all started to go wrong. William Paget, William Peter, or any of the other perhaps rather reluctant, now outwardly conforming Catholics in the King's Council, you would be forgiven in January 1555 for assuming that suppressing opposition to the restored Catholic Church in England and Wales would be a quick and painless process. After all, Mary's own accession had shown how very few of the English had in fact ever been converted into Protestants. The minor gentry leaders of that 1554 rebellion had had to keep their Protestant preferences to themselves for fear of losing popular sympathy. There had not been a single soul among the nobility or even the significant gentry who'd openly opposed the reintroduction of Catholicism. That's not what we hear, is it? It's not at all what we've been used to hearing. Even most of the senior Protestant clergy had quietly swapped sides. Without any kind of influential leadership, it was entirely reasonable for the councillors to expect that the poor would quietly conform. OK, a few firebrand preachers would probably make a fight of it. But they were the kind of extreme voices whom Philip's councillors had always opposed, calling them, as we've seen before Edward's death, prating knaves. Well, the councillors had been looking for years to find a way to shut them up. But leaving these extremists aside, it was entirely reasonable to assume that almost all of the people who'd been made to practice as Protestants under Henry and Edward would, like the councillors themselves, now just keep their heads down. Philip's Spanish advisers could confirm that that was what the normal experience was in Spain. Cardinal Poole, who'd spent many years in Italy, would have said the same about Italy. The Roman Inquisition condemned fewer than 50 people in its first 20 years. Only between 1.6 and 2.4% of people who were accused were in fact ever executed in Italy, though the percentage was a bit higher in the 1550s. So the experience from Italy and Spain was that most ordinary folk accused of heresy had acted out of confusion and ignorance rather than intention. They would gratefully agree to mend their ways and go home. Nobody was looking for a fight, including Bishop Bonner of London, to whom we'll return. Bonner found himself, for example, examining one group of women from Essex and discovered that far from holding heretical beliefs over key church teachings like the sacraments, they had no idea what a sacrament was. Quite understandable. 
Normally, judging by what was happening everywhere else, ordinary parishioners like these would do some small penance and then disappear from the record. That's what had also happened in England in the past. For example, 40 heretics had been arrested in Colchester in the late 1520s. That was under Mary's father, Henry VIII. They were apparently a little heretical sect based in Mother Bristow's Castle Tavern. Sounds a good place. But 39 out of the 40 had quickly admitted they'd made a mistake. They'd done (laughs) their penance and vanished. In England, by using the English heresy laws in 1555, the councillors had even made it possible for condemned heretics to receive a royal pardon. That would even include those outspoken preachers if they would agree to tone their rhetoric down. So the councillors could confidently expect the rate of executions to be even lower in England and Wales than anywhere else. But the first thing to do was to deal with that small band of firebrand, way-out, extreme Protestant preachers. Several of them, in fact, had been in prison since the very early months of Mary's reign. The first of them to be burned on the 4th of February 1555 was John Rogers, a well-known London preacher. He'd been held in prison since August 1553, but he'd refused to come to any kind of compromise. It's not as if Philip and Mary's government hadn't tried. According even to the Elizabethan Protestant writer John Fox, Rogers was offered a royal pardon, but turned it down. So too did the next, another unrepentant clergyman, Lawrence Sanders, who was burned in Coventry. Two more clergymen were burned on the 9th of February 1555. One, Roland Taylor, was burned in Suffolk, surrounded with a hostile crowd. Somebody, perhaps a sympathiser, killed him with a blow to the head before the fire got very far. The other was John Hooper, who'd been an extremely outspoken Bishop of Gloucester. Hooper's views had been so notoriously drastic that he spent some of Henry's reign in exile and some of Edward's in prison. But even John Hooper was offered a royal pardon and then turned it down. Yeah, so much for Mary's supposed Catholic bigotry. Hooper was sent back to Gloucester, where he'd been bishop, to be burned. It was Saturday, market day, and a crowd was expected. Now, Hooper had been equipped with a small hidden bag of gunpowder so that as soon as the flames reached him, he would die very quickly. It's a grisly but very significant detail. In the well-known burning in July 1546 at the end of Henry VIII's reign, I don't need to worry about the other details of it, the four victims had all been supplied with gunpowder. In fact, the crowd was warned to stand back rather than be caught in the explosion. Mm. Similarly, at the burning of two more bishops, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley in Oxford in 1555, one of the most notorious episodes in this whole story, it turns out they too had been equipped with gunpowder that ended the suffering mercifully quickly. It was still a terrible scene. Of course. But what's clear is that the authorities were complicit in these subterfuges to reduce the suffering of the victims. We've always been led to imagine that burning at the stake was a deliberately slow and agonising form of execution. But this evidence suggests the opposite. If prolonged torture was what you wanted, you condemned someone to be hanged, drawn and quartered. As historian Peter Marshall points out, the English, for example, traditionally burned women traitors rather than hanging, drawing and quartering them because it was thought to be a less horrific way to die. So the important thing to note here is that when the Protestants, Elizabeth I and James I, caught Catholics, they did not burn them, but they had them hanged, drawn and quartered. And many of them horribly tortured for many weeks first, as you'll discover in our series blowing up the gunpowder plot. 
In Bishop Hooper's case, however, the fire had been very badly laid and it took many minutes to get going. And in those minutes, his bag of gunpowder came untied and scattered harmlessly. The poor man burned alive for 45 ghastly minutes, perhaps even longer before he died. It's a scene I cannot get out of my head. Back at court, ambassadors now began raising scare stories about opposition brewing in the London streets. Well, it had been almost inevitable that there would be some trouble in London. Protestantism had, for various reasons, taken more hold in the capital. And it was also easier to give the authorities the slip in London. But there's really no truth in the old tradition that the burnings led to a widespread and rising tide of angry opposition elsewhere across the country. That, of course, was the story invented by the Elizabethan Protestant John Fox. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Historian Eamon Duffy has scoured the pages of Fox and finds that the evidence for widespread opposition to the burning simply doesn't exist. Yes, there was occasionally a show of support for some of the victims, for example in Colchester, which was, as we've just seen and as we shall see, a particularly divided town. But otherwise, the burnings appeared to have been universally accepted at the time and quickly forgotten afterwards. As we now know, almost all the English in the 1550s were happy to be Catholic. On the 10th of February 1555, the day after poor Bishop Hooper's grisly death, but probably before news of it had reached London, Philip's chaplain, Alfonso de Castro, got up at court and preached a sermon in which he urged the king and queen to be more cautious. Well, of course, traditional Protestant historians, and indeed some more recent writers, have jumped on this story. They tried to make it out that it's evidence that Philip and the Spanish were trying to distance themselves from Mary's crazy burning campaign. Well, we now have plenty of evidence that the burning had in fact begun with Philip's English councillors and his Spanish advisers. But perhaps, as historians have traditionally tried to make out, Castro's sermon is some kind of evidence that the burning only continued after Hooper's grisly death because, well, Mary foolishly ordered it to. On the 10th of February 1555, Alfonso de Castro, King Philip's Spanish chaplain, preached a sermon urging the king and queen to be more cautious before burning any more heretics. Protestant historians, and even some not-so-Protestant, have suggested that it shows that the Spanish were now disowning a campaign that was being pushed along by Mary. Well, given everything that we've seen about how the campaign got started amongst Philip's Spanish advisers as well as his English counsellors. That seems extremely unlikely. Anyway, Castro was the author of the standard textbook on inquisitions and how to conduct them. Can't tell us that he would now be telling Philip and Mary to give up after less than a week. It is true, as historians have often said, that the burnings did in fact hold for several weeks after Castro's intervention. But check your calendar. Which historians don't seem to have done. And you will find that the burnings stopped at this time every year. Actually, why is a mystery? Perhaps it was something to do with, I don't know, wet weather? As we've seen, the authorities didn't want to make the victims suffer a slow-burning death. It was meant to be quick. Meant to be quick. Anyway, just read what the Spanish friar actually said. It turns out that he was advising Philippa Mary not to stop, but to organise things differently. It had to do with questioning suspects privately as the Inquisition did in Spain and Rome, rather than in public, as they were doing in England. 
that would not have halted the process. It would probably, in fact, have speeded it up. It turns out to be a key idea, and we'll come back to it later. But we can certainly forget the idea that Castro's sermon was any kind of sign that the Spanish disapproved of the persecution. Once the inquiries into heresy got going again in late March 1555, they moved on from tackling the well-known outspoken extremist preachers to investigating the general public. Well, we can imagine everyone hoping that that could be done as quietly and efficiently and quickly as possible, with no more than a few particularly obstinate individuals ending up at the stake. But now the burnings began to gather pace, surprisingly and ominously. 19 by the end of May, 40 by the end of July, 75 by the end of the year. Now remember that the Roman Inquisition burned fewer than 50 people in its first 20 years. And now it wasn't well-known Protestant extremists who were going to the stake. It was, I don't know, Welsh fishermen, two farmers, two weavers from Essex. In Kent, an apprentice, a bricklayer, a weaver, a woman. Given all the European precedents, executing so many ordinary folk was completely unexpected. We can imagine Paget and the other councillors casting around that summer for some way to hold the campaign in check. Nobody wanted to rouse public resentment. The whole point of clamping down on heresy was, after all, in order to avoid public unrest. However, events beyond anyone's control in England were taking over, although few historians have noticed them. In late May and early June, peace talks were held at La Marque outside Calais. They were between the French and the Habsburg Spanish and Holy Roman Empire. At the beginning of June, however, the French rather abruptly walked away from the peace talks. Possibly the growing evidence that Mary wasn't pregnant after all, or was carrying a stillborn baby, encouraged the French to continue their war with the Spanish. After all, if Mary and Philip would not have a child, the Anglo-Spanish alliance would be seriously weakened. But whatever the reason, the collapse of the talks raised the renewed spectre of war with France and of the French helping recalcitrant English Protestants if they tried to rebel in England. Well, maybe that was one reason the campaign in England and Wales to suppress any remaining Protestant sympathy had to go on. Much more serious than the peace talks was the election at the end of May 1555 of Gian Pietro Carafa as the new Pope, Pope Paul IV. He was a hardliner among hardliners, the former head of the Roman Inquisition, the one who was known to say he would burn his own mother if she stepped out of line. In his first formal meeting with the cardinals, the new pope set out his priority, which was to suppress heresy and false doctrine. Worse still, the new pope was gunning for Philip, threatening war against the Spanish. He was also instructing England's Cardinal Poole to report to Rome. Everybody knew that Poole had a history of moderation, even sympathy with the Protestant Lutherans. It looked likely that the new pope would now press charges of heresy against Poole. And that likelihood would grow significantly worse if the campaign against English heretics was called off. Now it became inconceivable that the English government could even scale it down. It was completely locked in. And the heretics kept on alarmingly turning up, going through the long process of questioning and worse, refusing to go quietly home. More and more were getting burned and there was little the authorities could apparently do about it. What the contrast with the experience of the Inquisitions in Italy and Spain, where they burnt very few, began to be more and more apparent. Well, the traditional explanation, of course, was that in parts of England, Protestantism had somehow taken root more firmly than anywhere else in Europe. 
That now seems very unlikely, actually it always did. As we've seen, Henry VIII had made virtually no changes to the way ordinary folk practised their religion. It had only been from 1547, during the time Edward VI was a boy, that his councillors had pushed through a rushed Protestant revolution. But it had provoked rebellion in nearly every county in England, and when Edward died in 1553, there was very widespread demand for Mary to become queen and to return to Catholic mass. And there was, as we've seen, very little public support for the poor victims when they were burned. Whatever traditional historians wrote, there is now no credible evidence that ordinary poor English folk were particularly sympathetic to Protestantism by 1555. Certainly not enough to go to the stake for it. So what on earth was going on? argue that in January 1555, Philip and Mary's largely Protestant council felt that they just had to launch a campaign to head off any resistance to the restoration of Catholicism in England and Wales. But they wouldn't have expected it to last long or for there to be many victims. All the precedents, both in England and across Europe, showed that, threatened with burning at the stake, very few would cling to their beliefs. Most of the poor who ended up being questioned would turn out anyway simply to have been confused and certainly happy to be set straight. So we might very well imagine that Philip, Mary and their councillors were as appalled as we are, as the numbers, particularly of the illiterate poor, mounted up. The best modern scholarship, after all, is that very few English were sympathetic to Protestantism by 1555. So why were so many now going to the stake? We're in a much better position to try to understand what happened than we used to be. In 2005, the historian Thomas Freeman of the University of Sheffield published a searchable database of the 313 identified victims. Wherever he could discover the information, his database gives ages, occupations, places of arrest, who made the arrest, who passed sentence, the place of burning, and one or two other details we'll come back to. Freeman's table straight away disproves one traditional explanation for the numbers who were arrested, which was that it was because of certain fanatical Catholic laymen who launched their own witch hunts. The usual example that's quoted, because the Elizabethan Protestant John Fox singled him out, is Edmund Tyrrell. Tyrrell was a country gentleman who reported heretics in Essex and Kent. Well, Tyrrell did indeed arrest more than anyone else. But now we can see that even he only ever arrested 10 individuals. And that's out of a total of more than 300, you remember. And these were people Tyrrell had discovered on just five occasions. They included several members of one group that he'd come across in a wood on his own land. Several others were members of a single family who'd widely, indeed repeatedly, been reported by their own neighbours for shouting insults at them whilst their neighbours were on their way to church. Yeah, the, uh, the Munt family. So, well... Tyrrell doesn't look like much of a fanatic. He looks much more like a man responding to the cases that presented themselves to him. And the other supposed witch hunters look even less fanatical than Tyrrell does. Another old explanation is that certain churchmen relished the chance to send people to the stake and condemned as many of them as possible. Well, it is true that two men do seem to stand out among those most responsible for condemning heretics to die. Bishop Edmund Bonner of London, who we've met already, and Nicholas Harpsfield, who was both Archdeacon of Canterbury and Vicar General in London. When we look at Harpsfield's own well-documented visitations of the Kentish parishes under Philippa Mary, we discover 
a thorough pedantic administrator who listed every leaky roof and sexton's shovel. In parishes already known for their heresy, he did want to know about those who refused to wear rosary beads or sing in the choir. But it turns out that Hartsfield was more interested in winning people over than in having them burned. Hardly any of the cases he heard ended up actually being executed. Less than 1%, in fact, and that was as low as anything in Europe. Well, exactly the same can be said about Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London. His diocese was enormous, covering not only London, but all of Essex as well. The Elizabethan writer, John Fox, labelled the bishop Bloody Bonner and suggested he was conducting a personal vendetta against honest Protestants. But historian Vivian Westbrook has analysed Fox's accounts of the heresy hearings and compared them with other sources. And she shows that Fox heavily edited his sources to make the Inquisitors appear much more heartless and scornful. In fact, we know that Bonner in particular strained every theological possibility to find compromises by which the accused could walk free. The historian Thomas Freeman tells us that, quote, Bonner approached the task of managing the burnings with the wariness of someone dismantling a bomb. That's a fascinating phrase. Bishop Bonner was, in fact, willing to accept the vaguest of reassurances. Historian Eamon Duffy gives us one moving case, quoted even by Fox, in which Bonner questions a young apprentice called William Hunter. I think thou art ashamed to recant openly, but if thou wilt recant thy sayings, I will promise thee that thou shalt not be put to open shame. But speak the word here now between me and thee, and I will promise thee it shall go no further, and thou shalt go home again without any hurt. He even offered to have the boy made a freeman of London and to set him up in business with £40. According to the Bank of England's inflation calculator, that's about, what, £7,500 now. Some historians would come up with a much higher figure. We know about this case because William Hunter turned Bonner down and became one of Fox's martyrs. How many others, by contrast, took up such offers from Bonner, we just have no means of knowing. This old tradition of trying to blame individual heretic hunters, in fact, suffers from an obvious basic methodological fallacy. Did men like Tyrrell, Harpsfield or Bonner report and condemn more heretics than others because they wanted to? Or because, in the places where they did their job, London, Essex, Kent, there actually were more heretics? Using Thomas Freeman's database of victims, we can now answer the question. And it is exceedingly revealing. Why did so many heretics get burned in England, more per head of population than almost anywhere in Europe? Using Thomas Freeman's 2005 database of victims, we can now begin to answer the question. The obvious thing to do is to plot the victims on a map. Well, it's obvious if you know anything about how local history has transformed (laughs) our understanding of most periods of the past. Now, some historians have in fact speculated a little about the local history of heresy in this period, but most of them are concerned with where heretics were burned. But that, of course, was just an administrative choice. Much more interesting, as Dermot McCulloch and Eamon Duffy, for example, have spotted, is where the heretics came from in the first place. 
And what strikes you straight away is that 14% of them came from London and a further 66% came from just four counties, Essex, Kent, Sussex and Suffolk. So what, that's four-fifths of the whole total. Reported heresy in the whole of the rest of the country was very close to non-existent, a low murmur like that discovered in other countries. The traditional explanation is that London, Essex and Kent were just crawling with Catholic heretic hunters thirsty for blood. But zoom into the map much more tightly and we find that the distribution of heretics had nothing to do with any particular heretic hunters. Over 56% of the executed heretics with identified origins came from the Essex town of Colchester, which we mentioned before, and areas broadly defined as the Stour Valley along the Essex-Suffolk border and the High Weald along the edge of Kent and Sussex. Now, to those specific places, we can add another group of 11 who came from a small area around the villages of Thorndon and Mendelsham, which lay about 25 miles into Suffolk from the Essex border. Now, according to Dermot McCulloch, who in fact grew up nearby, this little group had strong connections with the Star Valley. If, therefore, we add this group in with those of Colchester, the High Weald, the Star Valley, we end up with a total of 63% of all those martyred, and for whom we have places of origin, or 77% if we add London. So, look, the heresy faced by the regime of Philip and Mary was not a general problem. It was very, very, very specifically and very strikingly an issue of London and certain towns and villages of Kent and Essex and places just near their borders. The question about why so many were burned under Philip and Mary is therefore not a general question about government policy or the spread of Protestantism, but a very specific question of local history. Now, local history has been one of the most powerful tools of historical understanding and reinterpretation in the last generation or two. But sadly, it's not on the whole been English historians' strongest suit. And this case is no exception. You see, the usual explanation for the concentration of heresy in England's south and east is that it, well, it shows the influence of Protestantism coming from France or the Low Countries. Well, there's probably some truth in this, but only in the times. Both Colchester and London had communities that were known as strangers, French or Dutch, some of whom may have been Protestants who had come to England to escape Catholic persecution abroad. But this can't be the whole story. Forty heretics were, for example, arrested, as we've seen, in Colchester between 1527 and 1531 under Henry VIII. And that's far too early for Protestantism to have spread significantly from Europe. And these Colchester heretics were not Protestants. They held religious views that any mainstream Christian European church would have regarded as heretical. Besides, almost all the victims burned under Philip and Mary between 1555 and 1558 in or near Essex and Kent were poor English artisans from rural settings who lived miles from the ports. They didn't look at all like the kind of people to have been much swayed by newfangled European teaching. So let's go back to the map. In fact, let's start to look at the landscape, something that's an absolutely fascinating subject, but very few historians have got their head around, particularly religious and political historians. Many of the Kentish martyrs came from the High Weald. Now, that was an inward-looking, muddy area, heavily forested since the Dark Ages. Now, woodlands always generated a whole series of by-employments, uh, charcoal-making... Pig-rearing. Yeah, wood-turning, that kind of thing. The wheel was also, in fact, a centre of the English iron industry, which in this period meant not big mills and things, but tiny, scattered, charcoal-fired furnaces powered by water wheels. 
Okay, cross over to the Essex-Suffolk border, and you find that many of the heretics here came from the Stour Valley, a ribbon of gorgeous, if rather damp and sparsely populated landscape, but later be made famous by the painter John Constable. Another centre of descent was in another little wooded area just a few miles north of the Stour, around Hadley and Suffolk. The other group, a little further into Suffolk around Mendlesham, have been studied by local historians and written up by one of them, Angus Williams. He shows that this area too was in this period a wooded and muddy parish and at the centre of its dissident religion from at least the early 16th to the mid-17th centuries was a marshy and often inaccessible corner on the river Gipping around the little hamlet of Tan Office. So, what do we have here? We have muddy, remote areas, all of them characterised by early enclosure, meaning they had, for centuries, had little fields of grass used for growing livestock. They also had plenty of woodland, with all the independent small-scale crafts that brought with it. These people lived in little, scattered settlements or isolated farms, and there were no large farms or estates. These areas were, as McCulloch has pointed out, a sharp contrast with the fenland and the sheep and corn-growing areas, not far away, for example, in Suffolk. Big, often open fields where the people lived in large villages and went well, just quietly along with whatever religious regime was imposed on them. By contrast, remote areas like the Weald and the Star always seem to have cultivated a sense of being on the edge of the law. And on the edge, they certainly were. What historians don't seem to have noticed is that both of the main areas, the High Weald and the Star Valley, straddled the borders, the edges of counties, Essex and Suffolk, Kent and Sussex. And both were also on the very edges of church dioceses, distant from their cathedrals with all their administrative machinery. The Weald, for example, was a long, boggy ride from the Cathedral of Canterbury on one side and even further from Chichester on the other. So they would have been left alone? They would have been left alone. You get the feeling of kind of outlaws and bandit country. <laughs> That's going too far. But actually, on this Canterbury-Chichester border, there was at this time a little strange twist. You won't find it in any maps in any of the historians' books so far. It was a little long, thin finger of the Canterbury Diocese that stretched out from the Weald and Kent and deep into the Chichester Diocese and Sussex. It ended up at a point just across the River Ouse from the little Sussex town of Lewis. So this was an area where county and diocesan and boundaries were particularly tangled up. Which meant that nobody knew if anybody was in charge. Nobody knew who was in charge. To this day, Lewis commemorates the 17 Protestant martyrs burnt outside its Star Inn during the reign of Philip and Mary, and quite rightly too. But almost all of those martyrs were in fact refugees from the Weald. They'd slipped across that confused border from Kent and the Diocese of Canterbury. Now, all this geography matters. Such remote areas, not only boggy and wooded, but also far from the centres of government, where they would leave you alone and close to borders across which you might escape, always, historically, produce pockets of dissent. Here you would later find, for example, Elizabethan Puritans and Civil War Baptists hiding out. Local studies show that religious dissidents, for example in the little Wealden town of Tenterden, had history going back at least to the early 15th century. And local historian Jeremy Goring points to other, quotes, pockets of heresy in the high Weald for at least a century before Henry VIII. Little town of Lewis had itself a history of religious dissidents stretching back many decades before the Reformation. Here, escaping the religious authorities from one county and one diocese to another was as easy as crossing the river. 
McCulloch has shown that distance in Mendelssohn in Suffolk, his home area, had been holding religious meetings of a hundred or more so-called Christian brothers and sisters back at least into the 1530s. As we've seen, Colchester also had a history of religious distance going back into the reign of Henry VIII and almost certainly long before that. The victims we're discovering in these places were not apparently, as we've always been led to think, ordinary Protestants who just resented the return of Mary's Catholicism. Until much more local history has been done, we cannot be sure, but it looks as though in these remote parishes where most of the victims came from, we're stumbling across something very different, something that is much older. These are isolated pockets of local, often rural religion that long predated Luther's Reformation and stood well outside both Catholicism and any of the different varieties of Protestantism. If that were to be the case, it would go a long way to solving the conundrum we keep coming back to, which is why a council made up of men who'd faithfully served Protestant regimes for the previous 20 years, sometimes longer, should organise a hunt for heretics in 1555 under Catholic Philip and Mary. Could it be that they were trying to silence not just a few particularly extreme and outspoken Protestant preachers, but also these pockets of much older heresy? The kind of heresy that everyone, Protestants and Catholics alike, had always persecuted on and off, and apparently everyone now agreed could no longer be tolerated in the religious atmosphere of the late 1540s and 1550s. Could it be that, in fact, after the first few months anyway, the persecution under Philip and Mary was not mainly directed at Protestants at all? Well, that's a question we'll have a go at answering next time at the History Café. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org, and you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And beware of imitations. Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word. Spread the word.